Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Anna Lanyon is an author and academic with a long interest in Spanish and Portuguese language and history. She's written three historical books and her third, Fire and Song, has just been released. Fire and Song is the story of the Jewish martyr Luis de Cavajal and his sister Leonor. In the late 1500s, the Spanish Inquisition reached Mexico and Luis de Cavajal and his family were forced to defend their Jewish faith. Fire and Song explores the power of faith and spirituality and is a sobering look at a period in history when religious tolerance was as foreign a concept as the New World. Anna teaches and translates Spanish. Her earlier novels were Malinche's Conquest in 2000, which has been translated into five languages and was awarded the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for History. Her second book, The New World of Martin Cortez, was released in 2003. So, Anna, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Now, your first love is obviously history, as well as Spanish. <laughs> how, <laughs> how did you, when did you decide to become a writer as well? Oh, um, well, I suppose it, it sort of happened in the early 90s when I had been actually trying to find a book about Malinche. Um, and I found lots of bits and pieces about her uh, in other books, but I didn't come across one book devoted particularly to her, Mm. but I acquired little bits and pieces along the way, as you do, and at some point I thought that maybe I should try and and do something about her life, but also about the mythologies surrounding her story. So I suppose a kind of two-pronged exploration. But when, you, when you're writing about something like that, you have to be so careful that you're not rewriting history, that you're representing mm-hmm. things in the right way. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some of the key elements that you need to remember when you're telling this kind of story? I try to, in my res- on the research side of my work, I try very hard to verify um, whatever you know, data is available. In the case of Malinche, there's not really a lot of conventional historic sources available, Mm. but there are other sources and signs, such as the fact that so much of the topography of Mexico is called after her. You know, it means something. But look, what I do, I suppose I work a little bit like a detective in that I try to verify the various stories. Let's say there's a story about her saying this or a story about her saying that I want to find out who told that story Mm. and when they told it, because when they told it may affect its veracity, the question of whether or not we can trust it. So it's a double-checking, triple-checking, and where possible I do try to go back to the original. If, If there are original documents, go back and look at them. And it's fascinating 
what you find when you do that because you often find that the sort of um, history, if you like, we'll call it history that's been floating around out there in the ESA is not really based on anything um, tangible at all. It's just, what does my friend Heidi Sogbaum say? She says something like, say it three times and it's history. (laughs) (laughs) So I do try to go back to as far back as possible to see if I can verify that particular story. Now, a lot of these things in in all of your books have happened such a long time ago. Can you tell us some of the actual documents or, you know, primary materials that you have, um, that you've used and seen to, to, to verify this kind of stuff? Yes, well, as I said, a lot of Malinche's story is not supported in traditional, conventional, European-style documents. It is, though, supported in the painted histories, indigenous histories, um, that were written not very long after the conquest of Mexico. So they were, they were painted in, um, just trying to remember, about the 1560s, or maybe a little bit earlier. The fact that she appears in, as such a central character in these, I think, tells us probably more than words can tell us. Uh, but... When, in ter- talking about Malinche's story, however, um, after she was dead, her daughter, who had married the Viceroy's nephew, um, brought a lawsuit against her, her father, who was actually Malinche's husband. Mm. Um, and th- so there you had a, I had a set of a family legal dispute, just like you would read about in the paper here. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a family fighting over inheritance. That's exactly what happened with Malinche's daughter, um, after Malinche's death. So I was actually able to read those extraordinary documents which are actually kept in Seville, Mm. in the archives of the Indies in Seville. And it was so strange to hear her referred to by her son Mm. as my mother-in-law, Doña Marina, because that was her Spanish name, Doña Marina. Mm. Malinche is such an almost kind of mystical, supernatural figure who hovers over Mexico, that the idea of her being someone's mother-in-law hmm. was quite extraordinary, so mundane, you know. Mm. Now, with the, in the case of her son, Malinche's son, Martin Cortez, once again, I, there, there is more documentation, and once again, it's, it's all legal. Mm. Um, there was uh, a lawsuit that he brought against his half-brother, who was also called Martin Cortez, mm. um, the legitimate Martin, if you like, as opposed to the illegitimate. So I was able to read those documents, and they're kept in Mexico City. Mm. Um, And then there was also, sadly, um, uh, some years later, when uh, both those sons of Cortes, Martin and Martin, were caught up in a great conspiracy against the, the Viceroy or against the Spanish crown in Mexico. And so once again, I was able to read through those documents. Wow. Yeah. And then with this one, I absolutely almost drowned in documents. When I say this one, I mean my latest book, yes. Fire and Song. Um, I almost drowned in inquisitorial documents because there are so many. So tell us more about Fire and Song. What's it about and what made you want to write about it? Well, it's the story of a family the, the Carvajal family, but in particular about the, the son, Luis de Carvajal. Um, this was a family of Spaniards of Jewish ancestry whose ancestors had been forced to convert to Catholicism mm-hmm. in 1492. They had, like all the Jews of Spain in 1492, they had a choice between 
leaving and going into exile, leaving their homeland, or converting to Catholicism and staying. The Carvajal ancestors chose to stay, um, and they probably thought it was a solution to their troubles, but it was actually just the beginning of more trouble. Mm. But my book concentrates mostly on the final generation. They were almost the final generation in that most of them were executed by the Mexican Inquisition. But um, my book is not about, you know, torture and death and so on. It really is about resistance, Mm -hmm. Uh, resistance in the form of absolutely refusing to go along with um, what we would call, I guess, a, a totalitarian regime that insists that there was only one way to live. Mm-hmm. And this particular family could not make themselves do that. And so they risked everything to cling to their, I suppose we'd say their cultural identity. They would not have recognized that term, but we might say it. Mm-hmm. But they certainly risked it all to cling to their faith. That is something that they did recognize because they talk about it and write about it all the time. Luis, in particular, the son, wrote about it in his letters to his mother and his sisters in the autobiography he wrote in Mm. a tiny little notebook. Um, And also he talks about it during his two trials by the Mexican Inquisition. Mm. And so once again, yes, so I had many documents. Each of the members of the family had two trials. So um, there is a mass of documentation. When I first began, I had Luis's, I had already read Luis's trial transcripts, which are written on parchment, of course, in um, scribal handwriting. Mm. I thought I would really probably just be concentrating on his documents, but I found I couldn't do that because each his documents led to the other families and I couldn't not listen to them as well. Mm. And so where did this fascination for all things Spanish and Portuguese and come from? Well, I think it began in my early childhood. I was very interested in Mexico in particular. Really? From, oh, yeah, from my early childhood. Mm. And I think that's probably because my parents were, not that they'd ever been or and never have been, um, that there was never any money for travel mm. in my family. But my parents were and still are very great readers and they love history and they love archaeology. So I think um, that's where my interest began. But then as a young woman, um, I set off and um, spent four years away from Australia traveling and quite a bit of that time was in Mexico and in Latin America. Um, and so that's when I, I suppose that's when I fell in love with the Latin American world. Mm. When I came back to Australia in 1976, I think it was, or seven, mm-hmm. um, I, about a year later, I enrolled at La Trobe University, which had, I think at that time, certainly in Victoria, had the only Spanish department. And the, I think in Australia, the first ever Institute of Latin American Studies. So that's when... Wow. That's when all that began. Yeah. <laughs> and history. Well, Latin American studies, of course, involved the languages of Latin America. Well, two of the major languages, Spanish and Portuguese, there mm. are other important languages, indigenous languages, but they weren't offered at that time. And it also involved, of course, histories, various histories of the various Latin American countries. Yeah. And so when you research these books and also travel in order to research these books, it takes a lot of time. So how long was the gestation period for something like Fire and Song? 
you know, it's often hard, I think, for writers to exactly nominate when something began because I think a germ of an idea is sometimes pops into our head years before we even think of, consciously think about writing. Mm. But I do know for sure that I first came across the Carvajal story when I was researching Malinche's Conquest. So that was in the early 90s. Right. Um, but I just was interested, but I didn't really think of writing about it. It just, was just a question of making some notes and taking some photocopies in the archives mm. in Mexico City. And that's all at that time. I had two more books to write before I even got around to it. But I suppose we could say that the gestation began 20 years before <laughs> the book came out. In the, That's when I first heard about the mm. Carnival story. But when you actually make the decision, I'm going to write a book on this, um, when was that and... You know, it must be so daunting to think of the amount of research that's then to follow. How do you even structure that process or do you just start and see what happens? <laughs> yes, fools rush in where angels fit. That's me. Um, I think I probably wouldn't have started had I known what was waiting for me. Yeah. But I did start and I, I do know when I started formally that would have been 2005. Right. Um, and so <clears throat> that's when suddenly it popped into my head that this would be my next project. But yes, to be honest, I would not have started had I known, um, but I did. And so I kept gathering more and more materials, you know, microfilms of entire documents. Yeah. Well, first of all, the first thing was a big research trip back to Mexico and also back to Spain and to the USA because some of the Carvajal family documents are kept at the Bancroft Library in, in Berkeley, the University of California in Berkeley. Mm. That was a big research trip and on which I took my son, who was then 15. And um, so that allowed me to look at the original documents and organise microfilms or organise copies. But not just that. For me, a sense of place is very, very important. I'm not just interested in what's written on parchment. I'm very interested in the streets and the laneways and the churches mm. and the villages. And I really want to convey that to my readers. And so it was the archives of the feet as well as the archives, the traditional archives. I know Mexico City very well. Well, I know Inner, the old city of Mexico City, very, very well. But um, I still had to sort of track down because street names change mm. uh, and so on. So I still had to track down where particular people had lived and where, where things had happened. Then, I, of course, I from there went to Spain. So in a way, I was... I was tracking the Carvajal family's journey, you know, back to Spain and to Portugal, and mm. I visited the villages where they lived, where this part of their story began, mm. and I also went to the Torre do Tumbo archives in Lisbon to look at some inquisitorial documents pertaining to their ancestors, you see, so because this family had been getting themselves into trouble. Mm for quite a few generations. So you talk about the sheer volume of research and it really does sound like a lot. <laughs> Do you have a method of um, storing that or is there a system that you that you use? I mean, on a, really on a practical level, yeah. how do you put it all into bits, you know what I mean? I know. Well, I carry a lot of it around in my head, but I also use notebooks. I've got a basket full of precious notebooks in which I captured 
oh, just particular points I wanted to retain in my head. Um, not in my head. I, I part them in my head yes. in case something happened to my head. In, <laughs> you know. um, so I have that basket full of notebooks, which is so precious to me. Um, and I also set, had to set about drawing up chronologies mm. of working across the documents. Like I would sit at my big table with, say, four or five of the family trial transcripts in piles beside me, mm. tracking when one person said this and when the other person said that, because I found that the chronology, the sequence of these things was very important in mm. unravelling the story. I also had to make up chronologies of when they appeared for their hearings before the inquisitors and um, and when I came to sorting out the series of letters that Luis wrote to his sisters in prison in 19, uh, sorry, 19, in 1595, I, I found it was very important to try to track exactly when he wrote that letter mm. and what he said. Um, and there were some letters that his sister, Leonor, wrote back to him, and some of them have survived. So once again, I had to track hers because it, it, sound, it, was, it is obsessive, I know, <laughs> but it was also very important to actually unravelling mm. the story of what happened. So you talk about, you know, these precious notebooks. Are you tracking all of this manually or electronically or, you know, yeah. Oh, well, the notebooks are handwritten. Yeah, I, mean, I know. Yeah, I love that, you know. Yeah. I love just writing in I love that. And also, it means you can do it anyway. You wake up at six in the morning, yes. you can make a note on the train, because I don't live in Melbourne. I live in, the, in quite a long way from Melbourne, so I'm often travelling between my home in the country and Melbourne. So if I've got a notebook, it's easy, just pull it out. Um, but, of course, yes, I, I also, with the chronologies, I actually did them on my computer, because that's easier to change things then, mm. you know, and move things around and use coloured mm. <laughs> coloured fonts for different people. Isabel is blue and Luis is red mm -hmm. and Leonor is green. The other thing I do when I get into a real mess, and I've been I've learnt to do this over the years, is get a great big sheet of paper, like a butcher's, mm. you know, sheet of butcher's paper, get out the coloured pens and start drawing, you know, mm. sort of drawing like here's the trunk of the tree if you like the main narrative and then with the colored pens tracing the various little branches coming off mm. um so i get into the most terrible messes you could ever <laughs> believe and i remember one time saying to my publisher in despair that was after when i was trying to write Manchester's conquest I think I might go down and hire the little church hall, the little old me actually mechanics hall where I was then living and stick all these pages <laughs> up. Then I can walk around. I suppose it's a bit like what screenwriters do. What do they call it? Storyboard. Storyboard. Mm. So I can stick them all up and walk around and look at them because <laughs> it is hard to hold it all in your head. Yes. I don't, I don't know, know how Tolstoy did it, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when you... You know, do, do all of this research. When do you know this is enough? No. I should start writing now. <laughs> oh, no, it's terrible. Well, I love research, you mm. see. Um, and so in a sense, there, there was a particular point where I began to write this book, Fire and Song. Um, I had enough to begin, but in fact, I didn't stop the research. I kept, because I couldn't, because <laughs> things kept occurring to me. So I would send for something else or... Um, 
I'm fortunate to be an honorary, honorary can't say it, honorary mm. research fellow at La Trobe University at mm. their Institute of Latin American Studies, and that gives me wonderful library rights. Mm. So I was able to send, because I don't live in the city, so I was able to send for secondary sources, for books, you know, to help me explore the broader context of my people's story. Mm. Um, and... There was a point, though, where there was another trial transcript I could have sent for, uh, which is, I know where it is, actually, this one. It's at um, Berkeley, mm. at the Bancroft Library. And it was it's not of the family, but a friend of the family, and I stopped myself because I thought, here I'll go. There'll be another 400 parchments. But you know what? I'm still going to send for it now and read it anyway because I have to know. Oh, my God. Um, but... Yes, so I oh, and there were other there were other little searches that I had to abandon along the way because I just came to dead ends. Right. Um, yes. But when you forced yourself to stop, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it's time to start writing. So, oh no, well I'd already been writing when I forced. Right. Yes, so, so first a lot of research, say two years of straight research and right. taking notes. Then I began to then I begin to write, mm. but I still go on researching. But you know, I, I guess I try to keep a balance. Right. So when mm. you were doing that, when you started writing and mm. possibly combining it with other research, yeah. um, do you have a routine? Do you have a certain discipline, a way to structure your day, a way to mm. a, a, a word count to achieve? What? How, how does that work for you? I don't have a word count. Maybe I should. But I, I am very disciplined. Um, mm-hmm. By the way, I, I work like most writers. I've got two day jobs at the moment, so mm. it all has to work around work, the work that pays the bills, yes, you know. Yes. Um, but I've usually been able to keep most of the time I work just part time mm. in my day job, so that the days when I am not working there, I certainly try to be sitting down at nine o'clock and work all day long. Well, you know, stop for breaks, work all day long, and work at most of the weekend as well. And in fact, one of the things I'm really enjoying at the moment because my book has just come out and I haven't begun a next one yet, although I'm thinking of it, but I haven't begun. I'm so enjoying being able to accept invitations from my friends to do <laughs> I really am. It's, it had become an automatic response with, of, no, I'd love to, but I can't. I'm yes, sorry. Yes, yes. And all of a sudden I can say, yes, I'm going to do that. And it's lovely. <laughs> so what's next for you? What have you, Are you already on to your next project? I'm not on to it in the sense that I'm not writing because I really need a rest. Yeah. And I must admit I'm terrified of starting again because mm. I don't want to enter that tunnel again mm. just yet. Mm. Um, so, But you've got it in your head? I have. I've got a few things in my head because I have um, – promised Alan and Unwin to write a travel book for my next one. I don't mean a, a travel guide, but, yeah. you know, a, a book about places and people. And right. In some cases, it will be, I think, the story behind the stories. Like, you know, the story... In some cases, it will be about places where I've been for the writing of my three books. Yeah. But being able to indulge a little bit in things I was not able to get put into the books. Right. Um, because I... I think if if you're a writer, you'll know that as you're working, you have to often discard things that you really like. That should be and fun. 
Yes, I hope. Well, I hope so. I do want to have a bit of fun, and uh, it won't all be a laugh a minute stuff. I mean, there, I think there will be some funny stories in mm. there. Do you um, think you'll be able to resist the tendency of telling the sto- some of the stories, the historical stories that you've that you've spent so much time researching, as opposed to your experience in those countries and cultures? No, I think I will be able to resist. I might just refer to them, but I will. I think I just don't want to go there again. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> oh, I mean, I want to go to the places. Yes, what I mean yes. I don't want to. No, I don't want to retell those stories. No. Um, although, I mean, there might be some, like there is one that I would quite like to do as part of the travel book, which is something I've wanted to do too for a long while. All over Mexico, in almost every village at some point in the year, people dance Malinche dances. Mm-hmm. And they're all different. Every village has a different one. So I certainly would like to have a little bit closer look at the dances nice. as, as opposed to her and her life. Yeah. At, the, at how people prepare. They spend months preparing, making costumes and, you know, so on. And I would certainly like to explore that a little bit. And- um, and so all of the stuff that you've written, most of the stuff you've written has been really based in reality and a lot of research and even the this the travel um, book that you're going to write is going to be based on your real experiences. Mm-hmm. Have you written or considered writing fiction? I am beginning to consider it. I do have something in mind. Mm-hmm. Will it be <laughs> it set won't... in that part of the world? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, absolutely not. No, just simple, local, the world that I know. But oh. I'm not ready to do it yet. But right. I think it, it might be germinating. Wow, okay. <laughs> and um, finally then, what would your advice be to budding writers who, want, who have a story to tell? Perhaps, you know, they have, there's a little known part of history that they want to bring to life. What's your advice now on how to bring that to life um, in an engaging but accurate way that's kind of hard I mean experiment read good writers who do it well Mm. so find out first who those writers are read what they read their works and see how they have done it and not necessarily copy them but it ought to give people a chance to think how they might do it experiment I began to write Malinche's Conquest in a fairly standard, conventional, as a very, you know, third-person history book. And I knew within a few months that it was dead on the page, and I didn't want that. And that's when I got the idea of writing it, in a sense, as a travel narrative, my journey and her journey. Mm. Um, And also because I knew I was writing for initially for Australian audiences who would not be familiar, many who would not be familiar with Mexico, with Mm. strange names and and Mm. so on. So it was a way of drawing them along. And I I think it has worked from what people tell me. But that's the best advice I think I can give is experiment and explore and start working and keep on going till you finish. There is no other way. Just, uh, what's the word? Perseverance. Mm, yes. <laughs> no matter what happens, just keep on crawling on your hands and knees until you get to the end. <laughs> <laughs> because you do get there in the end. Yes. Well, so, some people do, many do not. I'm told that, you know, that many do not. I'm, I'm told that by publishers mm. and so on. But yes, many people begin the journey, not everyone 
um, ends. So finally then, what's your advice on how to sustain that to the end? How to sustain that interest in your work and commitment? It is very, very hard and, and, and there are so many obstacles. It is, I think I sort of tend to picture myself as um, the tortoise, not the hare. The tortoise. <laughs> plodding, plodding, plodding. Things go wrong, family gets sick, children or elderly parents. There are always going to be things that get in the way. I, I think that's for everybody. Mm. Um, and you just have to keep going. And actually, and a lot of the time, it's not enthusiasm. Um, you don't, uh, most writers I know, we're not so in love with our work on an everyday basis that that love and passion sustains us. It is discipline. Mm. It is just sitting down and just returning to it. And, and then you hope, and if you're lucky, it usually happens with me, having made myself sit down and start, after a while it begins. Mm. You know, you, you are picked up again by the curiosity or my own curiosity or the passion but it's not I think it's something you have to sort of turn on but I think for most of us it's not there every day it has to be invoked Mm. great advice realistic advice and on that note thank you very much for your time today Anna thank you Valerie You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.